He is risen. Happy Easter uh, to every single one of you out there. Um, really glad to be here together as a church family. Welcome to any new visitors that might be out there. My name is Neil. I'm lead pastor here at Coast. And uh, every Sunday we open up God's Word. Because this is where the story of Easter is found. And this is where our hope is found. Amen? And so if you have a Bible... Turn to Rome, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right in front of the pew in front of you. Grab that red book and uh, turn over to Mark chapter 8. It's in the New Testament. The second book in the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark chapter 8. Well, I know uh, all of us have our Easter traditions and... Uh, some of them are already represented here right now. We have family in town or, or friends that are with us. We, uh, maybe we have a special uh, Easter morning uh, tradition as a family. Maybe we go to sunrise service or have a special breakfast together. Maybe you put on a, a special lunch or a dinner. Maybe you have a, a great family Easter egg hunt or, or, or a hunt in the neighborhood of some kind. There's always some kind of Easter tradition that uh, undoubtedly we all participate in. And, uh, and they warm our hearts. For us, uh, my wife and I know what to expect uh, during the week leading up to Easter. I've mentioned it before. Because you see, it happens every single year. Spiritual experiences in my life arise with great frequency in the days leading up to Easter. There's something about Holy Week that in my home, it's becoming tradition that we have um, experiences, sometimes afflictions, sometimes obstacles in our way that are nowhere to be found for the rest of the calendar year. But for some reason during Holy Week, they arise with incredible frequency. And each year, I endure the same fear that perhaps I should not share these experiences with the people for fear that they might seem too repetitive or too commonplace or too trivial to share, that they wouldn't be substantive enough to speak about. Yet here I am, persuaded by God to share them again with you in these, in these moments. It's a risk. It's a risk that I take in sharing these things. But a risk that I'm willing to take. It's a risk because they can be explained by other means. The world can explain these things away. There are empirical answers to be found, to be sure. Scientific answers. Answers that can be uh, grounded in the way this world works. And as I share these experiences, some, some of you may be tempted to say, oh, that's, that's just coincidence. It didn't matter that, that this was the lead up to Easter. But I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, in my own experience and in my wife's, we are clearly convinced that God is most especially at work in us in this particular week leading up to Easter. And that the enemy 
the adversary, the devil, is also extremely at work in our midst in the lead up to this glorious day. You see, the devil goes to work on me and my family every week before Easter. With malicious intent to try and discourage me from testifying of the power of the risen Son of God. And this year was no different. First, it came in the form of worldly concern that plagued my heart. I was overcome with uh, concern over the future of... uh, providing for and supplying um, some of the dreams that my family have for my kids. My wife and I, we've been uh, wanting to uh, send our kids to a particular school. And we've been uh, asking God and praying to God that he would open up the way, that it might be possible for us to send them to this school. And right from the outset, some of you might be thinking, well, that's awfully, that's an awful trivial prayer. Why not just send your children to any school? To that I might say, you may be right. Uh, There are so many different schools out there that are just as worthy as any other. But for us, this school, this was an important matter to us. This, This lay heavily on our hearts. And we really felt that God was leading us to this particular place. And so we started to pray. We've been praying for months about this school. And when we first went to the headmaster of the school, she looked at us and said, just so you know, um... Here's the, here's the tuition, uh, here's the price, and then she said, and by the way, the, the, the maximum scholarship we give is only 50%. And uh, immediately I, I walked away from that meeting very discouraged, because I knew that even at 50% scholarship, I would not be able to send my children there. It would not be possible. Nevertheless, for months and months and months, Casey and I prayed, and we waited on God, and we, we put this before Him. We knew that for some, this might not seem like a weighty matter, but for us, it was. It was an important matter for us, and so we put that fleece before God, and we kept asking Him over and over again, God, you have to supply the way. We can't even do it, even if they gave us the maximum. You have to pave the way. And sure enough, this past Wednesday of Holy Week was a day in which I was crunching the numbers one last time, and I was getting to the point where I knew I had to tell my wife that we could not go there. And I was incredibly discouraged on Wednesday night leading into Thursday morning. And I was truly hours and days away from having to sit my wife down and say, Honey, it's just, it's not going to be possible. We have to look at other options. And no sooner, no sooner was I resolved in my mind to make that kind of conversation with my wife that I received an email from the admissions director of the school. And as I opened the email, and as my wife would later open the email, we both read it wrong. We thought that we read that we would be responsible for 85% of the tuition. But in reality, it, the email demonstrated that we had instead been awarded an 85% scholarship for the school. 35% more And the headmaster says they ever give out to any family in the school. And we choked up with tears. We were completely overwhelmed by God's grace and provision in that moment. And my wife and I, we just looked upon each other and with tears in our eyes, we just gave thanks and praise to God for his grace to us. 
for his graciousness, for his provision. Something that, again, for so many would not seem so weighty, but for us, it was important. And we asked God for it, and he supplied it. And so here I was on Thursday morning, high as a kite, so excited for what God had done, and yet the week was just beginning. Typically, I sleep well every night. But this week of Holy Week, starting on that Thursday night, I didn't sleep well any of the nights. I had many restless nights, especially the past two, along with one night in particular where I woke up thrashing, punching and kicking at something that I thought was before me. I had a night terror, something that I had not experienced in years, years, perhaps over five years. And yet I woke up my wife next to me and I was punching and kicking at the air. Something had startled me. I don't know what it is to this day. The enemy was attacking my rest in an attempt to keep me from thinking clearly as I prepared for this morning. Then came other mundane things. Again, things that you look upon and say, oh really, come on. Can't that be explained elsewhere? Maybe. And it might seem silly to you, but to Casey and I, we knew precisely the origin of these things. First, it was the ants that decided to infiltrate our kitchen and our children's play area yesterday. All throughout the house, I was spraying ants and trying to keep my daughter from walking on ant spray. That was not very fun. And I looked up and I said, Lord, I don't have time for this. I have to finish. I have to put the final touches on this message. Then it was the children's behavior which for most of the week was remarkable, but then came Saturday, and me losing my temper and raising my voice at them over and over again for childish behavior on their part. Enter in feelings of failure and shame. What kind of father am I who reacts to his children in this way? How can I preach tomorrow when I'm such a hypocrite? And then, putting my head to the pillow late last night, having just dozed off to sleep, Then it came, perfectly timed. Beep. 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 I hate this battery. (laughs) This is a 9 volt. It's a Duracell. Perhaps I should have tried Energizer. The smoke alarm. Right as I had fallen asleep late last night, final touches, getting it all ready, with very little hours ahead of me till sunrise. And right as I went to bed, the smoke alarm went off. Immediately. You call it coincidence? Many in the world would. My wife and I know better. We've seen this every week during the lead up to Easter Sunday. But we stand here today, having expected such attacks to come. And this year, having been given the great hope of God's provision and power as He displayed to us in the blessing of the scholarship to the school. You see, the devil was not the only one at work this week. The Lord was paving the way to Sunday, and God was giving us strength. We were ready for it. We were aware of it. We knew the risks would come, but we were readying ourselves for those risks. 
And then this year, another spiritual experience came my way, just days before Easter. And this story is not trivial at all. Anxiety becomes me as I consider sharing it with you. For this story feels a little too risky to share. And at times I feel that, that sharing it with the people openly and this early, it might, that it might backfire on us if we put too much hope in a story that, in a story whose ending has not been written. It started once again on Thursday morning when I awoke and received news that one who was uh, to give her testimony at sunrise service was beginning to have doubts and fears. The enemy knew that Sunday was coming and that this woman was readying herself to bear testimony of God's grace and power in her life. And yet, in the days leading up to her testimony, in came a torrent of attacks from the enemy. She knows them well. In came attacks from relationships. The the adversary sowed seeds of, of discord and conflict between her and those close to her. But the Spirit would not permit such seeds to germinate. And reconciliation came quickly. But still the battle continued. On went the devil, this time doing what he does best. Bringing accusation. Feelings of unworthiness. Of self-loathing. Of shame. Crept in. And caused doubt. Can I do this? Can I really speak the praises of God? She wondered. I'm not good enough. I've done awful things. Who am I to stand before the assembly and testify of God's grace? But the Holy Spirit would not permit these lies to define who she was in Christ. And He refreshed her heart with His truth and the knowledge of her matchless worth in the eyes of the Lord. The Spirit was determined that the enemy would not win. And so this morning... At sunrise service, Mignon Estrada pushed away every entanglement and snare and rose to bear witness of the mercy and great power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those that missed it, she's permitted me to share it with you again right now. Mignon writes this. I was raised in a home that looked perfect. From the outside, my parents were Catholic, and I went to Mass every day, every Sunday. My father was a doctor, my mother a nurse, and a homemaker. But we had a secret. Both my parents were alcoholics. I grew up thinking that God didn't love me. Where I got this idea, I'm not really certain, but I thought if God truly loved me, my parents wouldn't drink, and there wouldn't be so much anger and even violence in our home. I thought that I was somehow bad in God's eyes. And we were being punished. I thought God had turned his back on us. I believed in God, but I didn't think he believed in me. I soon followed in my parents' footsteps and started drinking and taking prescription pills. I thought this was how all people lived and coped with their feelings in life. I was soon overtaken by alcoholism and drug addiction. I was trapped for the next 32 years never believing there was hope for me to recover, still believing wrongly that I was condemned to this way of life, that I was condemned to suffer, unable to stop, and suffering heavy losses due to my addiction. 
I didn't live life because one cannot fully live when they are separated from God like I was. Addiction separates you from yourself, others, and most importantly, God. The darkness I lived in was almost unbearable. I just existed, going through the motions of daily living with no purpose, no hope. Suicide attempts became common. On November 5, 2012, I was arrested because I had become so violent while intoxicated. When I came in, when I came to in my jail cell, I looked up and said out loud, Oh God, I get it. You want me to stop drinking, but how was I going to do this? So many of my church family came to visit me while I was incarcerated. The leader of my Bible study, Mary Ann, came every weekend. My pastor came. The elders came to give me encouragement. I began reading my Bible daily, and I wrote letters to God. I realized my incarceration was a divine intervention that I was because I was killing myself with alcohol and pills, and I couldn't stop without an intervention. But the day came when I drank again, despite my best intentions not to. The needed power to stop was not there. My willpower was to no avail. I had to rediscover God and find out who He really was, not what my mistaken beliefs had told me. My pastors came to my house and helped me find a Christian treatment program And my life began again on that day. I didn't think I was worth a sober Christian way of life. I thought wrongly that I was too great of a sinner. But I thought, if my church believes in me, and my husband and son believe in me, and Mary Ann believes in me, there must be something about me worth saving. One night as I was lying in bed, I asked God to come to me. I told God that it says in the Bible, if I seek you, you will come into my heart and mind and help me and give me strength. A few days later, I was standing in a worship service singing. And it came to me that my heart and mind had been transformed. I wanted to live a Christian life. I wanted to follow Christ. So much joy poured into my soul. I realized that God had been with me all along. I realized that I was saved through faith in, our, in His Son, Jesus Christ. I realized that He was merciful and had removed my addiction through His grace. I am eternally grateful to the Lord and my church family. Without them, I would still be lost or would have died without truly knowing the Lord. Today I live my life to glorify God. Today I'm excited to live a Christian life because the Lord has saved me and continues to work on my behalf in wondrous ways. My family's been restored and we are walking the right path together. I have plans to get my master's in social work so I can spread the good news by helping other women who are struggling in darkness. Today I can be a good example to my eight-year-old son and my husband, my heart and my mind have truly been restored, and I share my joy with all of you. Thank you, Coast Bible Church family. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die for me so my sins would be forgiven. He deserves all our praise. Today I walk in the sunlight of the Lord, not in the darkness I lived in for so many years. Praise God. Mignon Estrada. Such an encouraging 
personal story of God's grace. But my, oh my, says the world. My, oh my, wait a minute. This is a big risk. This is a risky story, says the world. To share on Easter morning. A lot of things can happen in this story yet. That story's not over. It's open-ended. You're taking a big risk, says the world. Don't you know the recidivism rate? Don't you know the odds? The world is wary of the risks. There was a time when I was risk-averse. When I would, there was a time when I would be exceedingly hesitant to share a testimony like this without a longer track record, without many years, maybe decades under someone's belt. There was a time in which I was scared to showcase Moments of God's grace and mercy and power because I wanted to wait long enough to see if the risk would go further, further away. Because after all, I can control that. I can control how much time I I allow between, well, between the falling into sin and that person standing before us today and bearing witness of God. I can control that risk. I can push it out years and decades to make sure that whoever we bring up, bring up before Coast Bible Church, that, 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 that their testimony is solid and secure and will never go awry. But then I saw the risk that God took on me and on us. And how much he embraced that risk. How he didn't put years and decades between us, but how he pulled us all in and said, I'm going to take a big risk with you. Mark. Chapter 8, verse 31. Three episodes, four episodes. See if we can get to all four. Where Jesus speaks of his resurrection. And look at it through the eyes of risk. Verse 31 of Mark 8. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. He told the disciples and those around him that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. 
and three days later I'm going to rise. He spoke this word openly, but then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned around and looked at Peter, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Too risky, Jesus, Peter said. Too risky. Let's, I heard your teaching. I know you suffer uh, uh, rejected death, something about resurrection. Jesus, let me pull you aside and let's talk, let's, let's weigh the risk. This is too risky. Let's put this in a controlled environment. Let's put it in a this-worldly environment, Jesus. Let's keep you alive. Let's keep you alive and, and, and going forward to Jerusalem. You can be the king. We could be your servants. All this talk of suffering and death, Jesus, put that aside. That's too risky. Let's go with the, the safe plan. The plan that, that, that we can control in this world. With our power, with our might, we can, we can control it. Peter rebuked Jesus for wanting to risk his very life. Jesus turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You don't understand, Peter. You don't understand. So get behind me while I press forward and take this risk. That shut up the disciples right quickly. One of the lead disciples being called Satan. <laughs> the rest of the eleven kind of, hey, we're not going to challenge him in the next few days. And the next few days went by. In chapter 9, Jesus was transfigured. He was, his appearance was changed on the mountain. And as he came down, he, he said to them, look at chapter 9, verse 9. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Look at verse 10. So they kept this word to themselves. They kept quiet this time. Didn't challenge them this time. Questioning what the rising from the dead meant. They were wondering, well, what do you mean that you're going to rise from the dead? It happens again. Later on in verse 9. Take a look again. This time in Mark 9. Beginning in verse 30. Chapter 9 verse 30. We're walking right through these chapters here. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And, and he, did not anyone, he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Look at verse 32 again. But they, that is the disciples, did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Yeah, Peter, yeah, he just, Jesus called him Satan, so I'm a little anxious to challenge him, so I'm going to keep quiet, they thought to themselves. I don't understand this resurrection talk yet. But I'm going to keep quiet. Peter challenged him and it did not go well. 
So mum's the word. But then more days passed. And some of them got brave again. Some of them got brave again. Turn to chapter 10. Verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them. And they were all amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he, then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, same story. We're saying the same story now four times over. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and they'll mock him and they'll scourge him and they'll spit on him and they'll kill him and the third day he will rise again. Okay, thinks James and John, two of the disciples. Okay, let's, uh, let's grant that for just a moment. Let's grant, re- what re- I don't know what this resurrection means, but let's, let's not challenge him on it. That went bad for Peter. So this time, let's, but boy, we, we still got to control this. Our, our leader, Jesus, he is not thinking rightly. And we, as apostles, as disciples, I mean, we are the, of the twelve. I mean, James and John of, of the inner circle, the inner three. We need to nuance this a little bit. We need to control this. We need to take this great risk and, and nuance it and massage it a little bit and make sure we still have our, our footprint, our stamp upon it. So Jesus, we have an idea for you as you talk this death, resurrection, whatever that means. Here's our idea, Jesus. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Jesus, death, suffering, resurrection, whatever you want to call it, but can we control the power? Can we maintain authority? Can we maintain power? Put us in power alongside you. We can right this ship on our own, in our own strength. You don't need to risk everything. I I know you have a plan in mind, but, but bring us with you that with our power, with our strength, with our might alongside you, we can nuance this just enough to maintain control. There's too much risk. There's too many factors that are unforeseen. We don't know how this might go, so put us on the right and on the left, and we'll make sure the ship steers straight. Don't risk everything, Jesus. Don't risk everything. Jesus pressed forward nonetheless. All but ignoring their request. He pressed forward to the cross. He pressed forward to an experience of great shame, suffering, scourging, mocking, spitting. 
He went all the way to the cross. And he did exactly what he said he would do. Taking on the exact risk he said he would take. And taking it on in full. And at Jesus' last hour, all his disciples fled. For at that moment, it was far too risky. Peter denied him. Too risky. Today I wonder how risk averse we are when it comes to identifying with Jesus Christ. I wonder how risk averse we are when it comes to wholly subscribing to the person, the work, and the life that Jesus wishes us to live. We don't want to be too deeply identified. We'll take some risks, but not too many. I I don't want to be too deeply identified with Jesus because then it would be too risky. I would would come across as a little irrational. I'd speak of things happening during Holy Week that, of course, can can be explained in other empirical ways. I would speak about things like heaven and and hell, and Lord knows the the people in the academy and the university, they would all but laugh at me. I would be mocked if I wholly subscribed to Jesus. I would be ridiculed. I might lose my job for subscribing to the things of Jesus. I I might get demoted in life, not just at work, but in my family, among my friends. As people look upon me not as someone who's intellectual and socially savvy, but instead a Jesus freak, someone who believes in the Bible wholeheartedly, who subscribes to its principles without reservation. It's too risky. It's too risky to go by this book. It's too risky just to orientate my whole life around it. I'll appear weak. I'll appear irrational. I can't do it. I want a controlled environment. I want a controlled environment, Jesus, where I help you along. Where I help your church along. Where I massage and nuance your word in ways that will be palatable to the culture at large. I want to control the environment, Lord. I want to control what it means to subscribe to your Son. I I know that you speak about leaving all to to proclaim your gospel, Lord, but but surely can I maintain my my current way of living? Can I maintain my, my current lifestyle? I like the car that I drive. I like the house that I live in, Lord. I like... I like the world. Put me in charge, Lord. Just let me stay on the throne, on your right hand or on your left hand. And let me nuance things a bit. Make decisions alongside you, of course. But where you go awry, I'll I'll correct you. I'll show you a better path. 
God took the risk. He took the plunge. He sent his son to die, risking everything. And from a worldly viewpoint, on that fateful day when Christ died, it looked like Jesus had lost. The disciples, the women, the people of the land, there was nothing but sorrow for Jesus' followers. They were overcome with grief. They were not hopeful when Jesus died. They were demoralized while the devil rejoiced. By all appearances, death had won. But then came the third day. Then came the third day. When God took all the risk. And demonstrated. That all of that risk. Great as it was. That every bit of it. Was worth it. Now on the first day of the week, John 20, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to him, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Peter went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb and they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down, looked in, saw the linen cloths lying there Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. And he saw and believed. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, She stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. But when when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, teacher. In the words of Paul, on the third day, when Christ arose, Death was swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Where's the risk? Where did it go? Paul said. God risked everything. He threw it all on that fateful Friday as Jesus lay there on the cross, erected for all to see. God threw all of the risk upon that moment in history. And yet three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and Paul can say, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? Where's the risk now? There is no risk 
because of the resurrection. There is no risk because of the resurrection. Had it only been death, the risk would have been great, it would have been overwhelming, and it would have swallowed up the person of Christ. But there was not just only death. There was death, then there was burial, and then there was resurrection. And because there is resurrection, there is no risk. There is no risk in resurrection. Romans 6, 5. For if we are united together in the likeness of his death, certainly, certainly, we shall be united together in the likeness of his resurrection. If we're united in his death, certainly we'll be united in his resurrection, Paul says. With certainty, we will rise as Jesus rose. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, our memory verse, and beyond. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is no risk in resurrection. Christ is risen. He's become the first fruits, the first one to rise from the dead. For since by man came death, by the one man also came the resurrection of the dead. There is no risk in resurrection. Christ has paved the way. He's gone before us. Verse 22, as in Adam all shall die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. There is no risk in the resurrection. God knew what was coming on Sunday morning. And so he took what in the eyes of the world was the greatest risk of all, putting his son on the cross, knowing full well that his son would come off that cross and would show himself alive. Alive. There is no risk in resurrection. That's why God can entrust the message of the gospel. That's why God can entrust the message of the resurrection to people like Peter, who denied him, who abandoned him. Because God now knows that through the resurrection of Christ, There is no more risk in resurrection. What Peter failed to do in his own strength, God through Christ did through the the son's sacrifice at Calvary. What Peter could not do by his own control, by his own, well, Jesus, come over here. We're going to nuance this a little bit. Let's let's stay alive. Let's maintain power. James and John, Jesus, we'll go on your right. We'll go on your left. We'll walk you through this, Jesus. We'll we'll set you on a better course. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to send my son to the cross because I know the end of the story. And as God took that great risk in sending Jesus to the cross on that fateful Friday, so now he can entrust people like Peter with the gospel message, with the message of the resurrection. A man who denied Christ three times, who tried to thwart the plan of God, and yet God says, now Peter, I've finished it. I've done it. Now take it and go. Go now. 
Peter, you, 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 who denied me, go, preach. At Pentecost, yes, 40 days from now, preach in Acts 2 to all the people who will come. I know, Peter, I know that you will feel unworthy. I know you will feel there's not enough time between this, God. I was against you. I was in sin. I was trying to thwart your plan. Lord, give me some years. Give me some decades. I'm not the right one. Don't put my testimony up there. Let's, uh, let's, let's delay the risk again, Lord. God says, no, Peter. I want you to stand before the assembly and preach the gospel. Read Acts 2. Paul, you killed Christians. You did heinous things. Heinous things. In trying to thwart the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet Paul, I came to you, Jesus said. And I grabbed hold of you. And said, you will now serve me. You will now preach my message. Paul says, no, no, Lord. That's too risky. Let's get some years. Let's get some distance. Some some decades, God. I'm not ready for that. God says, no, Paul. You go before before me to the Gentiles. Proclaim the resurrection from the dead. You think it's risky. (laughs) And they were scared of Paul. Did you remember that throughout the book of Acts? Many of them were scared of Paul. They said, he's the guy who killed Christians. And Paul yet came to them and said, I know. Great as a sinner as, as I am, yet I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the risk, the, the distance that I wanted between me and the Lord. And Lord, let, let me pay my dues for a while. Let me get some years under my belt. Let me mature and, and persevere and, and endure. And then after decades of service, when I'm, when I'm well prepared, when there's no risk at all that I'm going to fail, then let me go. God says, no, you go now, Paul. You go now, Peter. We close with a passage from 2 Corinthians 1. Please turn there if you're able to. 2 Corinthians 1. I used to be risk-averse. I used to avoid showcasing testimonies like the one we showcased this morning. Give me some distance. Let's put some space between it. What if things go wrong later? It's too risky, Lord. But then I saw how Christ uses all of me and how Christ uses all of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is also for your consolation and salvation. For our hope for you is steadfast, because because we know 
that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, of all the trouble which came to us in Asia, as as Paul preached the gospel, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, without strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping, helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul says in verse 6, I don't care if you're afflicted. I don't care if you're consoled. I don't care if you're going through times of spiritual oppression. Or I don't care if things are going well and you're feeling joyful and secure and at peace. Paul says, all of that I will use, the Lord says. All of it, the affliction, the consolation, the Lord will use all of it for our consolation and deliverance. To console us, to deliver us, to help us to identify with one another in this life and in what God is doing in and through us. And our hope is steadfast because we know, verse 7, that as we partake of the sufferings, the sufferings of the people around us, as we showcase those sufferings and the trials and the difficulty and, that, and we, we showcase that great risk when we pray for the one who has cancer and say, God, please heal them, what a risk. We might be proved to be wrong when God doesn't heal. We might be looked upon as a community that prays for things that never transpire and yet, nevertheless, we showcase it. We throw out the risk before God and say, God, here's our sufferings. We know that as you partake of the sufferings, you also will partake of the consolation. Paul had the sentence of death in him, verse 9. He felt like dying. That he should not trust in himself or in those around him, but in God who raises the dead. Friends, my earnest desire this Easter morning is that we would look upon the great risk that God the Father took in sending His Son to the cross. That we would look upon that risk and let it be the impetus, the driving motivator for you and I to come forward in the assembly and with open arms to say, this is who I am. This is where I've come from. These are the dark paths I've walked. This is how God has brought me through. This is where I am now. Through these sufferings, these afflictions. But here I am consoled. And I trust that God will use the afflictions and my present consolation to bless you, to encourage you, And to remind you that as God the Father took the great risk in putting His Son on a cross, so also I, with open arms, bear my afflictions before all of you. Not knowing how the story will end. It could be risky showcasing someone like that. 
The recidivism rate is high. The odds aren't great. But you know what? I don't put my trust in odds. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord, we are risk-averse people, God. We don't want to take risks. We want a controlled environment. We want a controlled experience with you. We want a controlled spirituality. We want a controlled Christianity. We want a controlled Bible. One that we nuance and, and, and massage to make sure no one gets offended. We're scared to put people forward, Lord, who don't have a long track record. That might defame your name, Lord, if the odds go south. Oh, Lord, forgive us for not remembering that as we bear each other's afflictions and burdens, as we take on that risk, that we are in so doing representing the great risk the Father took in sending Jesus to the cross. And God, it was no risk at all. Because three days later, Jesus rose. He rose. And we who know Him by faith, we will rise with Him on the last day. There was no risk, Lord. There was no risk because of the resurrection. And so, God, we open up our arms and our lives and we bear them before you, knowing that whether it's affliction or consolation, so we risk all, we bear all before you and the assembly, knowing full well that it is God who can raise the dead. How much more so can he use our life as an example to others? God, I pray that you would use our afflictions, use our times of consolation to encourage and bolster one another, that we would not be risk-averse people, but that we would bear it all for Jesus' sake. Give it all up in his name. Take every risk, because Jesus took every risk for us. In his name, we pray this thing. Amen.